Hello, it's Fangraphs Audio. Carson Stuley. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is lead prospect writer for Fangraphs.com, Kylie McDaniel. Much of the following conversation concerns, uh, sometimes tangentially, McDaniel's most recent evaluating the prospect posts. It's essentially his prospect list, uh, in this case for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Of course, the Arizona Diamondbacks recently hired Tony LaRussa. I asked McDaniel, and he answers very competently the question of how LaRussa's hiring uh, might alter the uh, player development scouting of the Diamondbacks organization. That's not the only thing we discuss. It is the only thing I will expressly preview, however. And I, I should also note that what follows besides that conversation, before that conversation, uh, yet again, is a um, is an absurd audio interlude crafted by McDaniel himself. So uh, prepare, please, for a silly audio interlude and then a conversation with Kyla McDaniel about baseball prospects. Thank you. Hold on, I'm uh, plugging in my microphone. I'm in the kitchen. Okay, yeah. Is that okay with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. The, uh, I was, sometimes I hear you got the, you said there's like a TV sound. What's your setup where you are there? Uh, I got a microphone plugged into my computer. Yeah. And then, uh, well, right now I'm eating, so let me go, <laughs> let me go move myself into a non-eating. No, you could, yeah, it's fine, whatever you want to do. Uh, but yeah, I usually have in headphones so that it doesn't, cause I have like, you know, my laptop hooked into like a, uh, uh, you know, like a speaker. So I didn't want it to be like, you know, some sort of feedback or whatever. Yeah, there is. Uh, sometimes that happens. It's happened before. Yeah. So I don't think mine does, but I like to stay away from it. Yeah. Sometimes less experienced podcast guests, uh, will make the, that mistake. Well, it goes back to the same reason you hear that on the radio, is people like hearing their voice. Yeah, no, it's never been my problem, because I don't talk very much. Yeah. Well, plus, you always say, uh, I know that when you call into radio shows, you just say, uh, you ask a question, you say, I'll take my answer off the air. Yeah. First time, long time, hang up and listen. Yeah, the first. you just say, first time, long time, bye. <laughs> yeah, you forget bye. to ask the question. Yeah. Hey, Carson, first time, long time, click. I'm quoting myself when I say that a... Uh, a bad thing to utter whilst losing one's virginity is uh, is to say first time, long time. That doesn't because it doesn't mean much, but it's it's going to confuse everyone present. Or or uh, not good for that situation, but great for YouTube comments. First, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good, Kylie. Well, I might as well. <coughs> Sorry, I guess I, just, I guess I should sign off now. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, you yeah. should take your answer off the air. <laughs> At this I, was, I was about to cough up some Chipotle there. That could have been a problem. Yeah. Is it, is it Chipotle that would give you a lot of options? Is that the one? Uh, well, there's a lot of places. Like, yeah, I think of it like a uh, like a Subway for Mexican food. Ooh, I don't want to think about Subway. But but all. actually good food, not right. not crappy food like right. Subway. But I mean, and, and as far as the choices go. Yeah. Is this is this an um, another attempt to woo corporate sponsorship? This subtle yeah, this subtle Chipotle plug. I, I can say from looking around, the the service was not good today, but there were no children working back there. So, yes. Chipotle's against child labor, and they're for delicious barbacoa. 
Are there are there companies that are pro child labor? Oh, we covered Nike last week. I haven't heard from oh, them yet, right. but I yeah, think yeah, we're, yeah. Gonna have, we're gonna have to stay on this. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Child labor generally against it. Generally. So- yeah, so so to, to recap last week, yeah. uh, <laughs> previously mm-hmm. on this stupid podcast, mm-hmm. uh, we were against companies that were pro-child labor, yeah, and we true. were for companies that were proliferating alcohol. Okay, yeah, agreed. Well, that was your choice, actually, but I, I was just anti-pro-child labor. But what? Uh, let me. Can I ask you a question about baseball? Because uh, you did the your most do recent. We have to. Yeah, we do. Your most recent post was. About the Diamondbacks, evaluating the prospects. Which we can now not get away from that title. I apologize. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're stuck. Uh, here's the thing I wanted to ask, though. And if you, I, I don't know how much you have to say about this or not. I could also, maybe I should be asking Dave Cameron about this. Although I didn't think about it then. And this makes sense because uh, you, you wrote about the franchise specifically. Kevin Towers was fired. True. Yes. Yeah. That that occurred. Yeah, that occurred. And then, what? At the same time, not very long after that, Tony Larusa was hired not as the GM of the club, but he has another title. And it's something like he is chief baseball man or something. I think it's chief baseball man. <laughs> I think it's baseball officer, but yeah, it's the same thing. Okay. Yeah. So um, what is he? What's what's going on there? I mean, generally speaking, because because when you talk about an organization and organizational health. Part of that has to do with the major league club, but a lot of that also has to uh, – a lot of that concerns uh, the minor leagues of that same club and the player development and um, uh, scouting and drafting, et cetera. Yeah, how do you imagine Jerry Seinfeld would have worded that question? What's the deal with – yeah. What's the deal with the, that? With chief baseball men? Yeah, with, yeah, chief baseball officer. So what's Tony La Russa going to do and t- – I don't know what sort of influence does a GM typically have. Not not to say that Larus is the GM; they're still looking for him. But who who has the most influence over an organization's direction, or is it an organization by organization basis? Yeah, Larus La is looking for a powerful GM, like OJ, still looking for the killers. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> he he got given a big title for a reason, and there are some other jobs that line up this way where there is a powerful sort of baseball guy in the above GM role, and typically it is a either younger or less experienced or less politically savvy or whatever you want to call it, GM beneath him, allowing that guy to not not be a puppet, but like his the, the, the top baseball guy's personality comes through. The other guy can sort of do the stuff that the top guy doesn't want to bother himself with. Mm-hmm. So that's how everyone in baseball perceives that situation is going. Um so to go back to the timeline for a second, so Towers got an extension before the year. I had him in the bottom five of my GM job security rankings. Everyone thought he was in trouble, and so getting a uh, extension before the year, everyone was like, "What's going on?" We thought he was on the hot seat, and then like three months later, he gets fired. Mm-hmm. It actually came out today that the extension was: you get one more year, and if we don't fire you, you get extended longer. It was basically just a one-year deal that said if you don't screw up, then you'll get to hang around, and if you screw up, we're going to fire you. And you won't have any guaranteed money beyond this year. So it was set up in such a way that they all knew what was going on. Um, but that wasn't, of course, isn't reported because executive salaries are never reported in anywhere near the uh, detail that the players are, which is sort of hypocritical and sort of frustrating and all that sort of stuff. But that's the way it is. Although, on the other hand, it's to some degree, isn't it the union that wants the salaries announced? So that, yes. 
I suppose that is true. So that there's pressure? I don't know if they necessarily want them announced. They just would like all the teams to know about it, and I guess it would help if the public knew so that they could complain if people are being underpaid, but then they can also complain if they're being overpaid. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if the public element necessarily pushes it that much. Um, but so, yeah, so when uh, LaRusso was hired, when Towers was perceived to be in big trouble, like two months into the season, everyone read that as Towers got fired, but he wasn't actually fired. But basically, LaRusso was brought in to do a, uh, you know, a top-down assessment of what do you want to do with this. And the interesting part of that was the D-backs had just fired Josh Burns a couple years before, saying that he relied too much on the metrics, even though he has a scouting background also, and then brought in Towers as the the sort of gunslinger, Brett Favre of GMs kind of guy that had had success, has been there a long time, knows his politics, all that sort of thing, has a great tan. And then basically he got too gunslingery, and they're like, all right, we want to move back toward that middle where there's a little analytics and a little gunslinger. And then they bring in LaRusa, who obviously has some sort of uh, logic to what he does as a manager, but has never done anything in a front office before. So it seemed weird to want to swing back the other way a little bit and get a guy who's never done it before. Uh, and also the D-backs are an organization that has now fired two GMs in a span where almost every team has it fired one. So they're seen as a little bit sort of PR conscious and maybe a little trigger happy and maybe not the greatest direction. Like there's some sort of thoughts out there and I bring up all this background to sort of set the stage because these conversations obviously came up with all the conversations I had with, with scouts from other teams and also scouts, uh, you know, within the DBEX organization because most of them, even the director level guys were like, well, we don't necessarily know where this is headed. Like we're not, we're not, we're not getting daily briefings from Larusa. He's trying to figure out what he wants to do. Um, and the latest news is that Larusa is the the front runner is Dave Stewart who used to play for Larusa, which again fits the mold of a guy I know that I'm comfortable with that has never been in the front office, so he's not going to command a bunch of power. I'll get to sort of uh, you know have my vision play out and have this guy sort of you know learn how things go. And he would then Stewart would then have to sell his agent business, which includes Matt Kemp and some other guys, um, to do this job. And that, again, that's where everybody thinks it's headed. Uh, some higher profile guys either haven't been mentioned or it sounds like Thad Levine with the Rangers turned down the opportunity interview, which would make sense given how this job is perceived in the industry. Um, and there's also an internal candidate, Ray Montgomery, the scouting director who's been uh, brought up, who interviewed for the San Diego job and uh, either has or will interview for this one. So it's not a, it's not a done deal, but like I was saying, the, the journey from Burns to Towers to LaRusa to whoever the new GM is, is interesting. The fact that they've hired, fired two guys and will now hire a third one is interesting. And the fact that it's sort of a president type role of a guy who's never been a GM before dictating who the GM's going to be after coming in with a lame duck underneath him. And then it also has come out that if Chief Stewart gets this job, Kevin Towers will stay on as like a special assistant which very, very rarely, I don't think ever before, has a GM been fired and then stayed on with that team. So it's a very interesting situation when I believe that's the only opening GM-wise in baseball, so everyone's sort of paying close attention to it, and it is not going in a a typical route. That would be, uh, I don't know, it seems like, I don't know, I don't know, but I would say if I were fired from my job as, I don't necessarily know what I do here, which is a pretty good case for being fired. I'd yeah, say. I think probably the best. The uh, but fired and then like, well, you can stick around, but you just don't have as much autonomy as you did before, and your opinions will, I mean, will matter less. That's not that's not what's explicitly being said. Obviously, the the Diamondbacks want to 
I suppose, retain Kevin Towers because they believe he has some virtues. That, that would, uh, I guess that's probably why guys leave, right? Because you're like, yeah, let's not, yeah. Well, yeah, and if you can get paid the same or more money to go do the same or better thing somewhere else, it seems like an ego-saving thing to go somewhere else. And in, an interesting aspect of this decision for Towers is he's a sort of old-school gunslingery guy, as I said. Larusa is an old-school, I don't want to say gunslingery. He seems a, you know, a little more deliberate, but is sort of an old-school guy, so they would presumably get along. And also, I was told before Towers took the Arizona job a few years ago, I was told this is going to be fun to watch if he gets hired as it's rumored because he's got FU money from running the Padres for so long. Mm-hmm. And so if anybody tells him, you know, sort of a team president is going to tell you what to do, he's just going to quit and leave. Like, he doesn't have time for this garbage. Right. So he's in an interesting spot where if he could maybe get a little more money and get a little flashier title and go be the number two somewhere, he's not really looking for that. He's already been a GM twice. He's got all the money you could want. He's looking for like sort of a good situation, and so maybe it's working with a guy who he sees eye to eye with, not having to move, you know, staying in the organization. Uh, maybe that's something for a guy in his position uh, would want, and not a lot of guys are in his position. Like I'd say, him and you know Brian Cashman, a handful of other longtime GMs, have that sort of security and stature in the industry that they're not in the sort of worried about the optics of it. When this happens, right, when there's turnover in the front office, in particular with the GM position. What are the what are the ripple effects in terms of um, the like the player development uh, and uh, side of things and operation side of things? So, uh, for example, like how many how many scouts does a does a typical team employ, and then how many of how much turnover will there be among the scouts uh, following the installation of a new general manager? Uh, let's say they have twenty. Amateur scouts, it's usually 12 to 15 area guys and then a handful of cross-checkers. Pro guys will usually have uh, 8 to 12. You then have a handful of sort of special assistant rover-type guys, and then internationally you have anywhere from 10 to 20, depending on how much you invest in that. So what does that add to? Like almost 50? Um, typically, like you're sort of your average changing of GM hands, mm-hmm. Maybe 10 of those guys have contracts ending that year and seven of them end up not getting renewed and leave. Sometimes it's work, we're, we're not going to bring you back. Some of it is I'd just rather go work with my friend over here now that my friend that ran this team is gone. Um, typically they'll, they'll keep everybody else. There's been, I'd say fewer and fewer sort of wholesale changes where I know in Houston, some people, some people already didn't like Jeff Luna when he was in St. Louis because of how some things went there and politically and he was seen as chasing Walt Jockety out. Whether that's what happened or not, that's how sort of Old school baseball people saw it. Uh, and then he got to Houston and saw that this was in trouble. I have a specific thing I want to do. We're going to sort of either people that have a year left on their deal tell them you got a year to find a new job, but you can hang around or sort of let some people go. Uh, I think that was the last example of sort of a, you know, making a large amount of changes right when you come in, which makes sense for sort of the amount of change that Lunau and those guys wanted to make. Um, I would anticipate from what I've been told in Arizona, it's not going to be a, I think only director level and up will sort of be under review. I think everybody else is sort of fine. Mm -hmm. And I don't get the impression that, you know, say Ray, the scouting director, if he doesn't get the GM job and it's Dave Stewart, I don't think he would leave. So I don't think there'd be turnover in the amateur stuff. I think, I think that's typical for jobs like this where maybe one of the sort of five directors leaves or his deal is up or he wants to go. Sorry. Sorry. Can you you hold on for one second? (laughs) One moment, yeah. there's a knock at the door. Hello? Hey. 
This is captivating. I hope he leaves this in. Sounds like a lady. Enhance audio. I think he's talking to his dog. You did a good job. Yes. Thank you. Hey. Oh, sorry about that. Yes, bit of a uh, yeah, bit of a kerfuffle, but we're back, Kylie. We're back. Talking about um, what were we talking about? Number of scouts team. Front, yeah, front office turnover. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, so the, the short version is, I don't think there's going to be any uh, any massive turnover uh, with this one. I think everyone will stay on. And it could even be that the GM stays on. So I don't. There's a possibility nobody leaves. Uh, but I'd say the average team, you know, whether it be the pro or amateur scouting director, or the international scouting director, or player development guy, or director of baseball ops, or assistant GM, or one, like usually one of those guys leaves, just sort of out of, uh, you know, sort of normal attrition with contracts being up and all that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, typically these days it's maybe five guys top counting scouts will, uh, will sort of be directly sort of let go or not renewed or whatever. And I would think this would maybe be less than that in Arizona. Yeah, you mentioned – and I, I guess people get, people get jobs in the real world. Generally speaking, they get them through someone. You know someone and that's how you get a job. Do, do you think that that effect – because the way you were describing it, it seems as it could be, I feel as though just my limited interactions with Im, important VIP baseball types – uh, it might be that there's even a little bit more of that within the baseball community. Yeah, because it's, I mean, it's very small. There's there's 30 teams, and there's sort of a limited amount of people who have sort of opinions that matter and some sort of stature. Uh, so they're all like, for instance, I'll I'll be in California for a week, and it'll be most you know going to area code games, which is like you know a big sort of nationwide showcase, but it's sort of primarily useful for the West Coast guys. Um, and so I'll be out there for a week. It'll be primarily either directors or West Coast, Midwest guys, not quite as many guys from the East Coast. And I'll mention one of these West Coast guys that maybe I don't see quite so often. I'll just mention just random guy from the East Coast, just like in a story or whatever. And they'll all know exactly who I'm talking about. Even if they don't see him at a bunch of games or see him all the time, it's almost always like, oh, yeah, one guy on our staff is buddies with him. Or, oh, yeah, I played with one of his... Uh, co-workers in minor leagues or, you know, our assistant GM used to work there and told us he's a great guy. Like, almost everybody at that sort of pro scout, cross-checker, or higher level has a connection to almost everybody. Even if they've never met him before, they have, you know, some sort of connection. And so obviously when you get to that sort of assistant GM, VP, uh, GM, president level, you I mean, we're talking like 100 people total are in that pool, maybe 150, whatever, and most of them have been there for a couple decades, and you're all going to sort of the same sort of, you know, GM meetings and owner meetings and things like that. So you're kind of forced to know each other, even if you don't even want to like each other. And everyone, even if you don't like each other, are kind of forced to get along because obviously if there's 30 GMs, if, you know, one of the 29 doesn't like you, you kind of need him to say positive things and that sort of stuff for everybody's, you know, benefit. So people even if they don't like each other, tend to say positive things. And so, like I said, when there's a small group of 150 people that are kind of bouncing around these jobs, it benefits everyone to sort of, you know, be on everyone's nice side unless you obviously, you know, can't. 
Oh, yeah, that's like when I say, uh, uh, oh, you did such a good job on the podcast, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it more comfortable for everyone, even if it's not true. Yeah, it's not true. Hey, let me ask you about some uh, – I want to ask you about a question about the, the Diamondbacks list in particular. Uh, we've talked uh, in, in particular because you wrote – what was it? A four-piece four four-piece article? There's a fifth part coming soon, but yes. On, on the hit tool. Yes. Yes. Uh, we haven't addressed – to, to, to that same depth, you haven't addressed to that same depth the, uh, the pitching tools and and uh, I guess how how you choose to you know to choose uh, how you choose to weight them. Um, but one thing I noticed while looking over the D-backs list was, for example, with regard to Archie Bradley, I see uh, I'm looking at his uh, at his grades right now, uh, and I see that with regard to command. Uh, he's a he has a 40 present value 45 plus future value after him uh, because it's, it's it's pitcher heavy at the top of the list the Di- the diamondbacks Braden Shipley has a future value command uh, score of 50 as does Aaron Blair I believe yes that's a true fact and so those are both higher than Archie Bradley and yet Archie Bradley ranks more highly than them on the list I assume some of that has to do with the other scores but I it um, because, for example, Archie Bradley's fastball is well regarded. Um, I'm curious as to how you weight those. Uh, I know that with regard to the hit tool, for example, you have a, a sort of personal way of doing it, of breaking it down to, into three different skills and combining them. Uh, do, do you have a similar strategy the way you weight uh, the way you weight the tools for pitching? Uh, that one I would say is a little more subjective. Um, so, like, for Bradley, he's never been a huge command guy, but when he's right, he'll show you 270 pitches, which I'm not sure if I said it in the report or not, but at one point there was a version of his report that said those two pitches, to give you context, is, like, Steven Strasburg or Justin Verlander's two best pitches, uh, which is true, but I realized that would also sort of create expectations for him. So, actually, if I left it in there, I wasn't supposed to. No, you Just, did not leave it in there, but you did mention that at his best – he has those. He has those. The two seventy pitches. Yeah, because for example, in the draft article, the twenty fifth ranked player in next year's draft is a high school player, and I said scouts have compared his swing to Ted Williams because it actually does look a lot like it. And then in the in the bottom part, somebody in the comments, somebody asked like, "Oh, is this guy that's ranked uh, you know twenty ninth? Is he any good? Like he's in my town or whatever?" And someone goes, "Well, he compared the twenty fifth ranked guy to Ted and Williams, so <laughs> of course he thinks that guy's pretty good." I'm like. He- did you, do you guys really think that I think the 25th best player in the draft is going to be Ted Williams? Like, you can't see that I said his swing has been compared to? Like, but anyway, so that's why I've now sometimes steer away from people want to know, oh, he's got 270s. What does that mean? Who's an example? And I say, oh, it's like Verlander or Strasburg's right. two pitches. Oh, you're saying he's exactly but, like Justin Yeah, but then they, hear, then they hear, oh, he's going to be that, which is mm-hmm. absolutely not what the rest of it says. Um but yeah, so anyway, now that I've finished my digression, uh, it's a little more of a feel thing. So if like, uh, here, let me pull up Bradley's scores. Um, so if he's a 70 fastball, 65 curveball, 50 change, but then a uh, fringy command guy, um, the, t- the, the sort of rubric in the middle of the rotation is if you have 260 pitches and a 50 and 50 command is a number three starter. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what you're working off of. So if it's, Maybe 
355s and no 60, then that's generally seen as a good fourth starter. And then if it's two 60s and a 55 and maybe 55 command, that's generally seen as a number two starter. And then if you've got maybe a 70 or two and 60 command, then that's seen more as a number one, which is what I'll write in the, the pitching tool thing when I get to it. Um, so with Bradley, he, he shows the two main pitches of a potential number one. The third pitch lags behind, so it makes him more of a number two. And then the fact that the command may not be enough to where he could be a, you know, nine strikeout per nine, four and a half walk per nine kind of guy to sort of go off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That may put him more in like a, you know, 375 ERA kind of guy, which would be more of a number three. And so you kind of end up taking him all the way back where a guy that's ranked right next to him would be 60, 60, 50, and 50 for his four grades, three pitches in command. Bradley just sort of gets there a different way. And you sort of use the command to sort of finesse which one of those sort of uh, examples is he closest to. If a prospect, a pitching prospect hypothetically has 80 command as his present-day value. Sorry, if you hear a squeaking, that's my dog being annoying. The, if, if it, we all know that's not your dog. Yeah, what, uh, what, uh, <laughs> how low... How low of a score could he get away with in the, you know, in his pitches if he's got an 80 command? And what, what is that guy going to look like? Uh, if a guy has three fringy pitches, so I guess it'd be 45 plus and then, uh, and then 80 command. I'm trying to think if there's an example. I know. I was, I, I, it's, I guess the part of the joy of, of, uh, this exercise, right, is, uh, trying to conceive of of anomalous sorts of players, you know, players who are total yeah, outliers. Because part of like control is throwing strikes, which obviously you could have an eighty control guy that has no stuff at all. Like that guy exists. Uh, eighty command is sort of seen as throwing quality strikes, and part of quality strikes is that they are like the the quality of the pitch is good enough that somebody could conceivably swing and miss. Whereas the guy throws nothing but thirty pitches, you can't say it's a quality strike if he's throwing eighty five. You know, even if it's placed perfectly. Right. So I feel like there is sort of a stuff component of command at some level. So I feel like if you go anything below forty five for sort of the stuff grades, you can't have eighty command. So if you've got a guy that's like forty five to fifty kind of fringe average stuff, but eighty command, I don't know. Maybe that's what Maddox was in his last year. Maybe I mean I, I even think he probably still had a sixty changeup that year. But you could argue he's. You know, 87 to 91 with a lot of movement. Some guys might call that fringy the average, and his breaking ball is probably a little above average. So I'd say the best example might be a guy like that at the end of his career that is sort of solid average stuff and maybe 70 command. That guy could still be good. I, I don't think, I actually had a writer that wants to write for us send me one of their sample reports, and he gave a present 60, future 65 command to a guy in AAA striking out like seven guys per nine. And I was like, you basically can't put 60 present command on a guy in the minors because unless he has terrible stuff, that guy would already be in the big leagues. Uh-huh. And if if there's so many guys in the minors striking out like 12 per nine that have below average stuff that are just getting by on command, if this guy's a present 60 command and he's got like average stuff, like he would be striking out more than six or seven per nine. Again, we don't, Scout by the box score, but you kind of have to look at it for indicators when there's sort of outlier things being claimed. And in that situation, he was claiming sort of an outlier thing, like this guy could go be whatever an example is of a guy with 55 stuff and 60 command in the big leagues. He's saying that he's that guy right now, and he's sort of league average in AAA. What about uh, what do you think Jamie Moyer was at the end of his career, or the middle of his Ooh, career? That's that's a good one. Mark Burley probably could get thrown. Oh in yeah, that. Burley. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it seems like it's harder to – if you're this sort of pitcher, it seems like it's harder maybe to get into the league. It's like only a thing you can have 
once you're, I mean, we're bringing up a number of guys who are sort of at the middle and or end of their careers. Like you have to break in with something. And if, if for no other reason, then those guys just have better arm speed to begin with. Yeah, and I remember there was actually a, uh, you know, prepare yourself for a name drop here. I listened to Jamie Moyer's interview on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. <laughs> oh, I haven't, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, he was on, I want to say like a month ago. I think he wrote a book or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's selling tote bags. Who knows? Yeah, we don't know. Uh, we don't know. The, well, the pitch effect stuff on Moyer goes all the way back to 2002, at which point he was 40. And so when he was 40 and pitch effect started, he was averaging 82.8. So it's not like this happened overnight. Like he no, just wow, that's so slow. Yeah, so he's pitching 81 to 84 when he's <laughs> age 40. That's... That's pretty extreme. Anyway, um, so he was, I believe, a sort of lefty that's, you know, sits around 90, maybe a little below, sort of good command, good changeup, good enough breaking ball, sort of your, your average stuff above average command kind of guy. And, and then. If, oh yeah, go ahead. Continue that. Because I have another name for you. We'll see how this one fits in. Yeah, and so I think typically as these guys go, uh, I remember I talked about Paul Wilson as an example of the guy where, He's a plus stuff guy, fringy command, and then his shoulder blows out. He comes back with fringy stuff. He's forced to learn plus command to get by. And then he's like, oh, I never would have learned this if I still had that plus stuff. And then sort of survive for a while. Um, and so Moyer, I think, was one of those guys where it was, young kid, I've got enough stuff to get by. I've got some feel for it. And then you sort of pick up all these little things that you only are forced to pay attention to if your stuff sort of becomes fringy. And so he starts noticing this guy stands this way in the box, so I can throw this sort of pitch to him. I noticed, you know, the catcher sort of flinches this way when he throws it. Like all the tiny little stuff that adds up. But even those guys that have maybe a 50 breaking ball and a 20 fastball always have a 60 changeup and at least 60 command. So like even then you can't say he's the the 40 command 80 or the 40 stuff 80 command guy because I, like I don't think that can exist. Right. And where would you put uh, Cubs prospect Kyle Hendricks on this spectrum? I don't know his stuff intimately, mm-hmm. although I remember I worked for a club the year that he got drafted, and the funny thing was, I uh, so we had this tool where we would take all of our all the tool grades for all the players, yeah. and I would be sorting them all different ways because I didn't really know the players that well because I was in the office, and I was picking out guys based on skills that I thought were predictive for you know non top five round guys, and so I started out picking like all right it has to have a fastball grade fifty or higher, fastball command fifty five or higher. And then three pitches that all project for 50 or better. So basically you're looking for that command starter we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And Kyle Hendricks was the guy that came up. And I was like, who's this guy? And one of the scouts was like, ah, oh, he's okay. Like, he's like a eighth to twelfth round kind of guy. Like, you know, stuff's kind of soft. He's from a small, I think he's Ivy League school. I want to say Princeton. Uh, sorry, Dartmouth. And, uh, you know, yeah, maybe, but probably not for us. We don't really like that kind of guy. And then he went in the eighth round and then he basically turned in, I mean, it was me looking at, one scouting report. It's not like I like discovered him or anything. But right, but you were just it was yeah. interesting that that kind of guy kind of popped up and our numbers saw it, but we didn't draft him. And I, I mean, yeah. So where, so where are his? I mean, for, what were the for those reports? Where did they have his command relative to his pitches? Uh, I believe it was a fifty stuff, maybe even less than fifty stuff, kind of an above average command type. But the mm-hmm. fact that he hadn't faced advanced hitters that much, you kind of hedge on the command. I'm pulling up his pitch effect stuff now. He was 87, 89 in the big leagues and uh, threw a cutter, curveball, and change. Uh, so sure sounds like a 
four pitch fringy stuff above average command kind of guy. Right, and he's never walked more than. Uh, and again, this is sort of uh, translating that into numbers, but he's never. Yeah, and his and his stuff could have changed since since he started. But I I remember, actually I remember seeing a Jim Kyle's tweet when some Cubs fan asked him, and he was like, "Kyle Hendricks, see a guy going forward." He's like, "Ah, oh, no, don't worry. But like, it's not big stuff. Like, this doesn't really last." Which again, sort of jives with all the information we have. Right. Uh, oh yeah, I also wanted to ask you um, also within uh, this uh, Diamondbacks report. Just uh, this is an interesting point. Again, this could be ten seconds. It could be the, you know the remainder of of, uh, of our conversation. Quite a threat. Yeah, uh, but with regard to Tuki Tuki Toussaint, Toussaint, yes, Toussaint. Okay, yeah, it's a, a French Haitian name. Yeah, Pans right. Yeah, yeah. It does have that. Um, you you make an interesting point uh, at the beginning of your scouting report of Toussaint. You say you scattered him nine times over just a two year period, so you might actually have too much history with the, this particular player. And I was wondering if you might. Develop that statement, if uh, the possibility of having too much history, or is it just a question when you're putting together a, a list like this, if you just know too much, what, you're either going to put them too high or too low based on some sort of latent biases? Yes. Um, that actually is an idea for an article I've been kicking around for like a month, is how many times is too many times to see a guy. Because uh, there's certain things that... Like, scouts want to be able to justify them being at the ballpark. And if you, like, say, for instance, you get assigned three teams in the Florida State League, and for whatever reason, the way the schedule lines up, those three teams you see back-to-back-to-back are always playing the same other team. And your organization says, hey, if you see, you know, guys a lot from other teams that you're not assigned to, feel free to write a report. So this guy's watching 15 games in a row of another team and not necessarily paying attention to him, but obviously he's picking stuff up. Um... Is you could argue he is more accurate after game six or seven than he is after game fifteen, um, because he then starts uh, like for instance, like I think an example I gave last week was if a hitter is hitting uh, you know two seventy like league average numbers, and then you see him do really really well, you'll basically round up a little bit, maybe give him above average tools, all things being the same. Uh, whereas in another situation, if a guy's hitting two twenty and you see him do that. Uh, you'll look at it a little differently. Whereas when you see 15 games, you might then throw out the numbers completely because you've seen enough that, you know, you know what this guy is. Like, you're, you have a sample of just the games you've seen that you don't have to look at it. And that you may be seeing him in a good stretch for 15 games, which is very representative of what he is in that stretch. But especially as a hitter, uh, you could be terrible for one half, great for another half, and one could be way more, uh, uh, representative for predicting the future than the other. And since you didn't see 15 games at another point of the year, uh, you'll, you'll pick the wrong thing. You'll have a false sense of, uh, of accuracy to your report, uh, that you've seen 15 games. So whatever you saw, just go through your notes. The answer's in there somewhere. It might not be, especially if there's some sort of mental stuff or mechanical stuff he's going through that maybe you weren't able to pick up because obviously the other team isn't always telling you all this stuff, although good scouts can usually pick that stuff out. Um, so there is a there is an extent where you do need to know what the numbers are to rep, as a representation of the full season, and there is a time where you can see a guy too much, sort of outthink yourself, try to justify where you're at the ballpark for that 15th game, and start looking for stuff that isn't there, and then start disregarding stuff like the general numbers as a representation of his season because you've seen so much you don't need that anymore. Yeah, our our brains sabotage us all the time. 
He's yeah, and then they're look and they're looking for patterns. And so if you see a guy do the same terrible thing three days in a row, you then want to extrapolate that to be a problem he's had for years, whether you can figure out that it, that's true or not. Uh, but maybe those are the only three times he's ever done in his life. Which actually that happened with me and Kyle Schwarber, where I saw he was doing a really weird thing with his feet, where during his swing his back foot was sliding forward, which obviously makes swinging for power very difficult because your base is collapsing. And then three days later, he wasn't. And I asked someone with the club, they go, oh, yeah, he was messing around with different spikes and then noticed his feet were sliding around and then changed back to the other kind of spike. And you saw the three games where he was screwing around with those spikes. And for all I know, I could have been seeing a five-game look where that three-game area was right in the middle of it. And I would have said, "For his swing is regressed since he signed. He's in trouble. And that would be technically correct. And if I wasn't there for the fifth game and knew someone with the team that was there and able to ask them and you know sort of able to do the investigative stuff, then that's how teams will say, we want to trade for Kyle Schwarber. What do we have on him? Our most recent report and our only report since he signed says it's a 35 bat with 60 power, which is what happened then, but isn't representative of the player he is. It was representative of those five games. And so that's why the numbers come into play because it's a quick way and usually objective way to have a representation of the games you weren't at to try to put stuff in context when sort of unusual things are happening. Yeah, and I would imagine that would be what you're describing where a small patch, a small sample, a visual sample, um, might not be representative of the player's potential or even the player's current talent level because especially I would assume with younger players, they're receiving training all the time uh, and they're, they're learning about their their own physical selves. So you're going to see different versions of them all the time, it would seem like. Especially with a guy in Schwarber's situation where he had, I think, caught like 30 games in college and is in the middle of playing the longest uh, ser- or the longest season of his life. And I was seeing him at the end of that season. So, of course, there's the, the scouts have now learned if you're seeing a guy for the first time and writing him up at the end of when he get the year season he gets drafted in, you should know that especially if the reputation of the player is better than what you saw, you're probably just seeing a bad version of him. Very infrequently does a guy look better at the end of that first pro season than he does at the beginning. Right. Uh, not related to the Diamondbacks, although maybe it's related to the Diamondbacks. I didn't, uh, I'll be honest, I did not research this particular part very thoroughly because at some level I don't care about the specifics. It's more the general points uh, that are of interest to me and what I want to ask you about. Is the emoji scouting report? No, no, no. I was not going to ask you about that at all. Good. Okay, good. I don't no, explain myself. The the thing I wanted to ask about uh, was, I think it was an announcement today or at least an update today uh, regarding uh, change of affiliations for a bunch of major league clubs or minor league clubs changed changing their major league affiliations. Or maybe I should phrase that the opposite way. Major league clubs have changing their affiliations with minor league clubs. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I was going to make fun of your syntax, but I guess that probably isn't a good move. Yeah, it also well, it's not. I guess because the major league teams are the bosses, and the minor league teams are, uh, you know, to some degree reliant on them. Although I guess if you have a desirable minor league franchise, then that could make you that could give you some leverage, I suppose. Yeah, and usually the ones that are desirable and are making the money and stuff, they typically don't change affiliations that yeah, much. Yeah, it doesn't mean yeah, which. Uh, so, but there are a bunch a bunch announced. Uh, for example, I think what the Dodgers are with Oklahoma City now. That's the one that made me mad because uh, I can easily get to Chattanooga, which is where Julio Urias was going to be next year, and now he's going to be in Texas, which makes me angry. Right, and then uh, so but then well once that happens, once one team changes, 
uh, you have a uh, um, you have a musical chair situation at that point. What music do you think would play for this particular game of musical chairs? I mean, can I tell you what I'd prefer to be played? It would just be some old timey like organ baseball music. Um, that yeah. would be my. That would be. I think that would be most fitting. Yeah, or but, we could uh, have a or give a central musical chair, with maybe some Marvin Gaye. <laughs> but uh, as long as it's actually uh, the owners of all the respective franchises who are playing musical chairs, so it's like a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of uh, elderly white men. Uh, yeah, like uh, awkwardly looking at each other. Like, do you want me? Do I want you? I didn't yeah. think I had to do this anymore, but I guess I do. I guess I do. Yeah. So wait. So what's so, so Oakland went to Nashville, or the A's went went to Nashville now, which means I assume the Brewers are going somewhere because they were in Nashville for for some time. They were there. Yeah, and, and that's that stadium is terrible. <laughs> oh my god, it's in, bad in Nashville. Yeah, it is really bad. And it's in the really cool area. Not really cool, but it's like generally in downtown, but the stadium, like the seats are falling off. Like it's really bad. And then in Sacramento, which I think has been one of the most successful uh, minor league aff- affiliates, um, they're, so they're now with the Giants, uh, it seems like. And so that leaves Fresno, Fresno alone. And maybe so someone goes to Fresno. Oh, this is Fresno's with the Astros. Okay, yeah. So my point, I, I, which which goes back full circle to Oklahoma. My point is, they don't really care about the specifics. From your experience, though, how can that affect teams? I know there was some, there was some uh, conversation about, you know, or there is has been some ongoing conversation about how having Las Vegas as your AAA team, um, you know, the Mets, the Mets have had that before. They I think they went from Buffalo to Las Vegas, right? You want a you want a young pitcher in Buffalo. You don't necessarily want one in Las Vegas because of the run environments. That's just one example, though. Yes, uh, another one uh, is when I was with Baltimore. They were very proud of the fact that I believe it was. Let me work it out. Yes, all of their full season affiliates were within four hours at the big league ballpark. And that seems ideal, right? Because at yeah. that point, if you you if you have a guy rehabbing, you could send him to any level. To any of them, yeah. And the only team that wasn't close was the GCL, which was at the spring training thing in Florida, which sometimes a player rehabbing needs to go to. So it's like the only thing that isn't like reachable by car leaving at noon from the ballpark that day is the one place where there's sort of the most advanced uh, medical stuff for the serious medical things. And we also have our lowest affiliate there, so it's sort of the easiest bar to clear as far as is he ready to play here. Mm-hmm. So it was almost a perfect setup. And it was also great for the people in the office because if the team was out of town or we didn't need to see the team that day, you could literally go to any of the affiliates. And, of course, always one of them is playing a home game that day and usually two or three of them. Uh, so it's easy to check up on everybody, and the people like myself that weren't necessarily like director, decision maker guys could see all of the minor leaguers very easily. Right, but then if you have a, you know, like the Mets now, they have a uh, their highest uh, AAA, their highest affiliate is uh, a cross country flight essentially. Yeah, and that's another one where some teams that are in the East Coast that have a team in the Cal League, like I know Cincinnati did, and now they've moved all the way to the Daytona team, so now they got that that West Coast thing taken away, not only did they not want people going to Bakersfield because of the sort of culture and also the run environment, it also was across the country. And so if some guy maybe needed to rehab there or a big prospect needed to go there, they had a bunch of reasons to not send them there. So they basically just had this black hole of a team of, you know, basically guys they didn't necessarily have a lot invested in, all in this place that nobody wanted to be at on the other side of the country. Like, it's not a great sort of morale thing because then players can easily tell where they stand based on where they are. (laughs) Yeah, right. So if you're playing in Bakersfield, 
Was it Bakersfield? Yeah, it was Bakersfield for the Reds. Uh, yeah, they, they, Bakersfield now has another team, but Pete, I don't know who's there, but they probably don't want to be there because Bakersfield is like one of the things that development people bring up is like, oh yeah, that's not a great situation to be in for the reasons I just described. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, are there, are there, uh, we summarized a couple of them. Are there any other sort of notable differences that might come along, uh, come along in terms of player development? Yeah, the Cal, the Cal League and the PCL are the two for, uh, run environments, specifically like Colorado Springs, which the Rockies are now leaving, and then the southern end of the Cal League, uh, are particularly bad, along with Las Vegas and a couple other teams. So you usually want to stay away from those, and also, in general, you'd like to stay out of the league altogether if you can, because then half your games are going to be played in extreme run environments, and then your players not only aren't, you know, aren't staying in those environments, now they feel like they have to adjust their game for half the games they play, which, you know, isn't a great setup. Um, yeah, there's also the, the sort of cross-country geographical locations where you'd like them to be at least all on the same coast. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like the run environment and the geographical location is like 99% of it for the t- from the team perspective. Yeah, well, I, I remember, uh, well, Brandon Wood was a prospect, but he, uh, he played, uh, I mean, this is cherry picky, but it was often hard to tell, for me at least, how powerful Brandon Wood actually was because he played, what he played in uh, Lake Elsinore, maybe or Rancho Cucamonga. I believe it was Rancho Cucamonga he played in. Uh, known as Rancho by scouts. Yeah, yes. okay. He played in Rancho and uh, as a high A player, and then at Triple A he played in Salt Lake, which I believe also has. I mean, to the extent that they all do, you know, Salt Lake. Yeah, he's at least playing half his games in a bad environment. In a bad environment, and then Double uh, A. That's in Arkansas somewhere. I don't know if it was then when Brandon Wood was coming up. That's probably. Yeah, a, I believe it. I believe it was a more normal, uh, more normal run environment. But that is difficult, and the same thing happens with probably both San Diego and Houston prospects too, because you get Texas League teams frequently have. Um, they, they, those those leagues play up a little bit higher too. So some, you have a Double A addition as well. And there's also uh, good environments for pitchers, particularly in the Florida State League. And I know Savannah and the Sally League is a very, very big, like comically large stadium. It kind of looks like the polo grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I know those in general for hitters, you're thinking like, oh, we're going to have a big power hitter like Kyle Schwarber, for example, who was in Daytona. Uh, they're going to have trouble hitting home runs. But typically that just forces the guy to focus more on doubles to the gaps and opposite field. It's almost a better thing to have them experience that because they're going to play in big league stadiums like Petco that are like that. Um, whereas for the pitchers, it obviously maybe we'll get into some bad habits where they'll get a little more fly, fly ball friendly because they realize it could stay in the park. But usually you, that can be fixed. Whereas, yeah, I, I remember doing the uh, the Diamondbacks list. Multiple Diamondbacks personnel, would I would say, all right, what about this hard-throwing reliever that's had some trouble this year? You'd be like, oh, he got renoed. I was like, Reno? They're like, oh, yeah. That's Went a verb. to Reno. He knew everything was going to fly out of the park. He started trying to throw everything down, and then he changed his delivery, and then he started pitching backwards and throwing all breaking balls when he's, like, you know, upper 90s fastball guy. Like, there's a lot of that. And they're like, yeah, his numbers were good in AA. They were good in the fall league, and then they were terrible in AAA, and then we called him up as sort of an example. Um, I want to see either Matt Stites or Jake Barrett uh, were the guys they were talking about. Uh, where those sorts of things happen. Also, Jimmy Scherfey, I think that happened to him also. Jimmy uh, Scherfey! Oh! <laughs> In your face! <laughs> <laughs> Alright, you're done. You're done. This is, what, 40 something minutes. Yeah, but like 10 of that was you at the door. I know. I know. 
And uh, yeah, I, I assume you haven't listened to my intro music yet, but it's pretty epic. I, I, I did listen to it. Hey, here's the here's the thing. I'll make this request on air. If you could have a if you could have a longer, slower fade out. Okay. That's what I would request. You, I don't know if you've changed it already. This is like a like end of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure type of time travel situation here. I don't know if you have changed it, and then that's what I've installed. But I sent you the only version of it, but I can give you a longer fade out. Yeah, just give me a longer fade out because I fade in the conversation, so they uh, they sort of start. There's a sort of conservation of noise. I've actually got an idea that. Uh, audio-wise, that would work for a fade-in situation. So I'll just tag that on the end. Yeah, freaking do it. <laughs> it's going to be great because now people are going to hear it at the beginning. They will have already know. heard it, and they will yeah. know that I did not know what to expect. And they're all going to be horrified. Yeah. I actually have had a couple scouts, uh, I- I'll say admit to me, uh, I-, I listen to your podcast, and it's always sort of, it's never like, and blank, it's always listen to your podcast open-ended waiting for me to respond, and I'm like... <laughs> Uh, uh, uh what, what, what did you think about that? They're like, yeah, you know, uh, it was it, it was podcast. It's like, yeah, thanks, thanks, guys. Listen to your podcast. Period. Next yeah. subject. <laughs> it leaves the room. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was expecting. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so uh, I've I've got some uh, I've got some other uh, interesting content that I thought I would have done by this time this week. We could have talked about it on this podcast, but I had some administrative things to take care of and. Uh, we will then have them for next week, including a notebook on various aspects of international baseball, which I know you're going to love. Um, yeah, I'm ready for it. Yeah, it's pretty big time. Yeah, especially uh, there's certain continents that I would weigh over others, you know. But well, and there's also there's 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 uh, as I believe you'd call it reportage involved. Yeah, I want to see some reportage. Yeah, don't we all? We'd like to see some reportage out of this guy. Yeah, let's do it. And then I'm also working on the twins list, but. Uh, it it may or may not be done, but for next week's podcast, but Ooh, twins, I'll be close. Twins. Yeah, with with uh, conundrums, uh, Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano at the top of the list. Yeah, I'm guessing Jose Barrios is going to get a spot uh, up there. I I prefer to call him Jo, but yes. Uh, Jo Barrios is right. I think he prefers to be called Jo Barrios. Is that right? Yeah, that also sounds like uh, like a pretentious author's name. Jo. Well, yeah. You well, let me these. ask you. You're a pretentious author. Would you go by that name? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> You got me. Uh, wow. Uh, look at this kidder. The, uh, yeah, I don't, I, um, yeah, J.O. Barrett. Well, people do that with the initials. Uh, I studied the classics in college, and uh, you find a lot of, a lot of those books are written by initialed people. I, I was, remember I was told at one point that people did that because women that were writing under assumed name wouldn't have to change their name if they just initialed the first name. Oh, that's pretty good. And that that's where the, like, I was, I was joking if I was an author, my name would have to be K. Stephen McDaniel. Like, yeah. only pretentious authors do first initial and then first name, last name. Yeah. And I was, yeah, I was told that's where it started from, and then I think people thought it sounded cool, and so guys started doing it too. That yeah, could I, be completely wrong, but I know in at least one case that was what the why first, it The first part sounds, Sounds totally reasonable. Yeah. The first thing you said. After that, I don't know. We got off the rails, yeah. This is, this is a podcast. All right, we're done. Hey, Colin McDaniel, thank you for your contributions to Fangraphs Audio this week. I do what I can. All right, that is Kylan McDaniel, the lead prospect writer for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.